It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, a podcast from The Independent. I'm Ben Kelly and each episode we'll be speaking to our correspondents and other experts to better understand what is happening around us across the worlds of politics, culture, sport and more. This week we're talking about the exam results chaos which has affected thousands of UK students. And to do that I'm joined by the Independent's policy correspondent John Stone. Welcome John. Hello. It's been five months, John, since the UK government announced that exams wouldn't be taking place this year and yet the process of awarding the grades, uh, which always happens in the middle of August, has, has now been so shambolic uh, that students have been left confused. Tory MPs are turning against their own education secretary, Gavin Williamson, and even the government's most ardent media champions are lampooning them on the front pages. Uh, it's quite a situation. I suppose to start, John, we'll look at the fact that A-level students were given grades but these were grades which were suggested by an algorithm. Why was there an outcry around this? So I suppose you have to go back to um, to the reason why this why they chose to do an algorithm in the first place. And it, it sort of made a bit of sense if you think about it in a policy wonk sort of way. Um, they, they wanted to essentially avoid grade inflation. So they, they had this option of, well, teachers, teachers give predicted grades anyway to their students. So they thought they would take the predicted grades. And then instead of just running with those, they would sort of apply a few filters to them and hope that this sort of would create what they would, what on average everybody would have got in the exams. Um, and the reason they did this, partly they thought it would be fairer than just allowing teachers to choose because they thought that teachers tend to overestimate what people are going to get. But they also wanted to sort of keep the, in, in education policy, there's a, there's a not I wouldn't say obsession, but there's certainly an interest in keeping confidence in qualifications. They didn't want people to think that, oh, everyone gets an A. You know, you can trust if someone, someone's got an A star, they're really good at this subject and stuff like that. Um, and also there was the issue of university places as well, because there are, there are a finite number of university places, uh, well, it was capped at the time, and they didn't want too many people to get them, uh, too, too many people to get their grades because universities over offer, there wouldn't be enough places for them to do it. So they ran all these grades through the algorithm, and on aggregate, um, things seemed to be broadly uh, you know, there, there was a slight. There, were, there was actually strangely a slight increase in the in how good the marks people got, but there were a lot of extremely high profile outliers where they sort of tested the algorithm to um, produce grades that kind of looked 
on aggregate as a group like they were fair, but that was different for certain individuals. So for some individuals, they were very unfair grades. And the people who they were unfair to tended to be people who, um, say, went to go to a school which historically didn't get good results but were expected to get very good results. So really star pupils coming up through the education system in a way that, you know, on their, on their own back, basically exactly the sort of people that you and I, everybody really has a lot of sympathy for and who we don't think should be penalised. The reason for that was that they um, they basically based a lot of the algorithm on past results of a school. So essentially, if a lot of people got E's at the school historically, and then the teacher said, well, I think my students are all going to get A's this year. Well, they say, well, I'm not sure about that. So they, they, they downgrade the marks to suit it. The problem is that even if this might be true on aggregate, um, it's not true for, for certain individuals. It can't detect when someone's going to do particularly well. Um, and it also isn't can't really detect when a um, a school is improving, um, which is very difficult. There was also a further unfairness on it actually, and this is it gets a bit technical. But one of the um, it, it was said that the algorithm, and there's good evidence for this, said that the algorithm favours private or independent schools over um, comprehensives, but also sixth form colleges, which did particularly bad out of them. Um, so basically, the reason for that was that if a school or a college has a very small number of pupils. It's actually exempt from some of the algorithm, so its grades don't get downgraded. Um, and that essentially, although it doesn't directly refer to private, private schools, it does mean that a lot of very smaller sort of uh, private schools were exempted from downgrading, and sixth form colleges, you, you know, universally weren't exempted from it. And as a result, there's lots of evidence to suggest that sixth form colleges did very badly out of it, comprehensives did pretty badly out of it, and uh, a lot of smaller independent schools didn't do too badly at all. Um, so, I mean, that really summarises summarizes the issues. It, the, the algorithm has felt to unfairly penalise people, particularly star pupils uh, coming up through ordinary schools, and was also unfair to uh, people just going to ordinary schools. So it was sort of the perfect storm, really. Everything was kind of going against this, and and the outcry was was palpable um, across last week and from all sections, really. Um, it, it almost seemed inevitable that the government would have to change its plan. The U-turn now means that students are going to be getting the grades from their teachers, um, which presumably means they'll be more personally suited to them, but. John, does that complicate things further now? Because people now have two sets of results. Uh, they've probably now got slightly better results, perhaps. Um, now they've got their university places looking at them and they're kind of potentially going to be oversubscribed places and so on. And so it, it just kind of, it doesn't look like this is going to end the confusion, does it? Yes. So, I mean, although the government has solved its problem, what it's done above all by... Uh by moving to predicted grades as it's essentially moved the problem onto universities who are now in a situation where I think I mentioned before, they, they sort of over offer uh, places. So they, they say, they tell, uh, you know, 20 people, if you get these grades, uh, if you get these grades, you can come to, to our university and study this course, but they'll only have say 15 places. And they assume that 
you know, 25% of them don't get the grade. And that tends to work out on aggregate because they tend to be quite big. It's actually a little bit how, um, I don't know if you've ever tried to get on a budget flight and been left at the airport because they've overbooked it because they do that with planes. Like, you know, people don't turn up and uh, it allows them, uh, it's the most efficient way of doing it apparently, except when it goes wrong. And this is one of the cases where it does look like a lot of people are unfortunately going to be left at the airport proverbially there's a few things that might have basically there won't there's likely to not be enough university places for the number of people who have now got the grades to get them there's a few ways that universities are responding to this the first is um terror and chaos everybody's a bit confused about how it's actually going to be solved but practically um there's a lot of suggestions that there could be deferment so just saying yes you can come you've got a place but you can't come to next year because we just don't have the capacity that is problematic for a few reasons. Firstly, because it affects next year. So it puts next year's cohort at disadvantage because there's still not enough places next year to run, you know, a year and a half of worth of people. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's also not clear who should be deferring. Should people who have their grades unfairly downgraded be the ones made to defer or should it be people who got them originally through the algorithm? It's not really clear that either one of those people uh, those groups of people is any more deserving to a place this year than the other but for some reason they have to change the government has given a little bit of help they've lifted a cap on university places that they recently imposed um, and said actually universe universities you can recruit as many people as your resources allow you to um, this will have differing effects on different universities so for some universities um, particularly the wealthier ones that maybe have their own endowments and things like that um, it will largely solve the problem. So a lot of, say, Oxbridge colleges have come out and said that they will just simply fund extra places because they can, they have the cash to do it. In a, in other places, it it doesn't really help too much because I think a lot of universities just can't recruit more people. They, you know, it takes time to build more, uh, build more space and hire more staff to teach more courses. You know, it's and you, it's not something you can just do with the click of your fingers overnight. Um, and don't forget as well, I mean, the whole reason we're in this mess is because there's a coronavirus pandemic and, you know, people are expected to social distance as it is. There's already space on, you know, universities like every institution, business, whatever. They are all under pressure for space as it is. And, you know, capacities at universities will be restricted as it is in, you know, any other building in the world, really. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, coronavirus is still, it's not going away. And that's one of the things that must be sort of modelling all this, because as you say, you can't really defer this down the line anyway, because it's going to have a knock-on effect. But also, you know, who knows where we'll be exam time next year and so on and so on. But, you know, you think back to to March when the government said, right, you know, we're closing schools, uh, you know, exams are off for the summer. When they made that decision, obviously this was always on the cards that they'd have to have results which were not based on exams and therefore probably not perfect um but was there an alternative to this could you know let me just play devil's advocate could they have made people set the exams or allowed people to come in and do the exams and done this a different way was i'm sure that would have been sort of controversial as well maybe yeah there's there's a number of different approaches that have been taken in different countries so um, i believe it's germany simply didn't cancel its exams it's a legitimate approach um you could argue that you know, getting all getting kids back into school during the height of um, the height of the pandemic would not have been a good idea. It might have um, 
spread the virus further and there was a, a wider public health concern about it. Um, you could say that Germany was in a more prepared position to do so. It had locked down a, uh, around the same time, but it had a much more active test and trace system. So Germany, if I don't, uh, if you've been, I don't know if any of the listeners have been abroad this summer, but if you go abroad, things are a little bit more normal in most uh, continental European countries than they are here because they've maybe gone through the stages a little bit more competently they've taken a different approach and allow people back in um or you could take another approach for instance in france i believe they have um they did cancel exams and they did give people lots of high grades and they did over recruit uh universities but essentially the government just said yeah we'll fund extra university places um there was extra university funding for it so uh, that essentially allowed them to do it. Or you could have taken a similar approach to the UK and applied an algorithm, but just had a fair algorithm. <laughs> like it's the entire principle isn't necessarily wrong. Um, it's just that it was pretty bad. Although, you know, it's um, it is questionable whether people would ever accept uh, a grade that was more or less spat out of a computer based on things that really hadn't been measured or done. I mean, there's always going to be an element of, uh, you know, this isn't actually what I would have got um, if I if if I'd had some input into the process. And the fact that they, at the end of the day, you're trying to create data from something that isn't actually there. You're trying to measure something that you haven't measured, um, and you're always going to be filling in the blanks a little bit there. So it's difficult to see how that could have ever been totally satisfied. But you never know. If they've been a little bit more careful, they might have got away with it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, we all remember doing exams. We've all done, you know, whatever form of exams and uh you know there's the effort that goes into it there's a the little bit of pride and whatever you manage to get and, and those you know those grades sort of stick with you forever it, they, you know they're always something that are on your your record and so on and it means a lot to kids especially at that age you know it's, it's everything that your your whole school life is about um so obviously there's a lot of anger now uh facing point at gavin williamson the education secretary um being called on to resign from the front pages to the back benches um, but there's no sign that's going to happen. He was on uh, TV yesterday morning and he was asked three times if he had offered his resignation and he refused to comment on that. Um, Boris Johnson doesn't seem to be in the business of firing ministers or calling for heads over these 
kinds of controversies does he? So I don't think this is going to be something he's going to resign over, is it? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. But I think it is, as you said, generally, Boris Johnson doesn't tend to sack ministers. It hasn't happened yet. It may happen in the future. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of, oh, politics is post-shame. You know, you can't shame someone into resigning anymore. Um, it's, But, I mean, it's not like Gavin Williamson has had total full support from the government. I mean, he yesterday was seeking to push blame onto Ofqual, the uh, the, regu- the exams regulator. Uh, he sort of went on TV and he wouldn't say whether he had... Um, you know whether he had confidence in in the in the the chair of that body's um, uh, you know uh, whether whether he, whether he had confidence in that civil servant, sort of suggesting that maybe it was sort of suggesting maybe she should fall on her sword, she should be the one to resign, maybe shift blame a little bit. And actually today that was that was followed up by um, an anonymous statement from the department from a spokesperson from his department saying. The department has full confidence in her, um, and Downing Street, Downing Street seems to have confidence in her as well. So it's not, you know, I think he is. If anybody has ever resigned, if anybody was to resign so far from the government, I think he would probably be the one who was most hanging by a thread. But that said, I think it goes back to what you said. Really, he's, you know, ministers don't seem to resign from this government, and it's, that seems to be a sort of general principle and calculation that they've taken. Who knows? Maybe we'll, maybe that will be proved wrong in the next couple of days. But if GCSEs go without too much of a hitch, which it seems fairly possible they might do, if that happens, it seems seems difficult seems difficult to see how the story could be moved on in a way that there's renewed pressure. And also, the opposition isn't really calling for him to resign. Um, that that seems to be something that the current Labour leadership doesn't really do either. They don't seem to see an advantage in it. They sort of let it go, bubble on. And there's arguments for doing that as well. I mean, it's if it's uh, Tories who are calling for him for him to quit, or uh, you know, it, it seems to have more effect. And uh, if the story bubbles on for longer, then perhaps more people notice it, and it has a, a a bigger sort of impact on the government. But for whatever reason, there's not that much pressure on him to quit, despite people not really liking him. Mm. And presumably Labour are looking at people like Williamson and thinking, well, if they're doing a bad job or they're, you know, let them keep going because they're just kind of, you know, they're contributing to this picture that we're getting of a government that's really um, uh, fuddled by this entire thing. And that's what I was going to move on to. You know, this is not the first U-turn this government has made during the pandemic. In fact, it's almost becoming um, sort of a calling card. Um, I'm just looking at the list earlier on of things that they have sort of spectacularly changed tack on. Uh, the NHS surcharge for non-EU workers, uh, free school meals, of course, um, the timing of the contact tracing app, the NHS bereavement scheme. It, you know, it seems everything that comes along has to be suddenly screeched and turned around. I mean, what is going on at Downing Street at Whitehall? What's, what are they doing? Because, yeah, that's a very good question. And it's it's probably, it's pretty difficult to answer it definitively, but... I think one thing that we've seen perhaps over the last few years that's become evident is I think Britain has always had a sort of a self-image of being very well governed. You know, it's a, it's a good professional civil service and not just at home, but abroad, it's always been seen as been very competently done. It's not clear how well Britain actually is. Well, <laughs> is very well governed. Um, you know, you list all those things and that's all we thought. It, 
it's very difficult to know whether that's um, an issue with the structure of the civil service, whether it's an issue with ministerial direction, um, you know, but clearly things do keep going wrong. Um, it is also worth saying that things have gone wrong for a very long time. I mean, if you cast your mind back to the 90s um, and the noughties, there was a succession of problems at the Home Office. That that was something that just kept happening. You know, they kept accidentally releasing prisoners and things like that. And uh, the, the difference there was that Home Secretaries repeatedly resigned. But you never really sort of, but here we never really seem to draw a line under it because this government has more or less decided that people don't, don't have to resign when things go wrong. Um, I think that's the biggest difference, rather than the fact that um, there are problems, which there always are in government. Um, I suppose one issue is you could, without wanting to get too uh, FBP about it, the uh, Brexit has taken up a lot of capacity, and that's what the government is in the civil service, and that's what the government has been focusing on for the last several years. And we did sort of bounce from that crisis where there was a, a lack of clear political decision-making and leadership mm-hmm. and less time to make choices. We bounced from that into the worst crisis since the Second World War. Well, I mean, yeah, probably the worst one following the second, what would have been the worst one, but the second worst one because we had the pandemic. Um, we sort of bounced into that literally the same month. Um, so there maybe wasn't too much time to prepare. So that might explain the magnitude of the issues that are being discussed. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you could probably write several books on what is going on, why things are going wrong. Um, but it is worth questioning the premises. Like, you know, is there of that question and it, is, there, is it actually any worse than it's always been or has it always been quite good or have we always just had better PR to, <laughs> to explain the yeah. way? I mean, and, yeah, and to give them credit, I mean, you know, the pandemic, it, you know, it is unprecedented. That's the word we all keep using. Uh, they were a sort of a new government coming in in the new year. And as you say, Brexit, you know, for, for better or for worse, they had been focused on that. Um, it's not surprising that, you know, this pandemic did not come with um, a guidebook. Although, you know, we do hear these reports of, you know, Dominic Cummings is sort of ruling Downing Street by popular opinion and polls and kind of going where the public want them to go. They're testing what the public uh, like, what they don't like, and that maybe this is how they're sort of generating their policy, which might account for why it's so, uh, I don't know, fluid, shall we say? I mean, you're, you're the policy man. What, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, um, I think one, if Boris Johnson is one thing, he's very difficult to pin down. Um, and I think it's, I cast my mind back to uh, when I was leaving university in 2010, there were tuition fee protests. And, you know, there were lots of people out on the street um, protesting against these things. There was a, you know, strong public opinion against rises in tuition fees. And the government wouldn't back down. It it saw this as an important thing, uh, an important part of its policy to to push ahead with it. And uh, you compare that to what happened this week. I mean, there were a few protests. People got quite angry. You could say the political dynamics different. Maybe they were concerned that they would lose voters. Maybe they were concerned about the optics of it more than putting up fees for students. But for whatever reason, they decided to back down this time. And last time they didn't. And I do think there is a much more of a tendency these days particularly from Boris Johnson, 
to just kind of yeah just to stay in government it's actually really i used to be europe correspondent and it actually feels very similar to the way that angela merkel uh worked she would always adopt if if her opponents ever had a point and managed to land the glove on her she would just go oh okay yeah fair enough and adopt it so for a while it looked like the greens were going to to beat her and uh over the issue of nuclear power that was shortly after the fukushima disaster and she just said, oh, okay, I'm scrapping all the nuclear power plants in Germany then. And she didn't, I don't think she thought it was a good policy because it had a lot of knock-on effects, but um, it was a, it completely neutralised the political threat. And I think Boris Johnson or at least Dominic Cummings or whoever is, whoever is uh, making the decisions operates in a very similar way. They're not really there to do – I don't think Boris Johnson is really in power to do that much. I'm not – I think his main – his main aspirations are personal. He wants to be prime minister and, you know, he writes books about Churchill and wants to be like him, but I'm not sure he has a, a program that he's particularly wedded to. So why burn all that political capital to do something, you know, that you don't really think is that important? Why not just change it? Um, and I think that's the way that it's certainly been going um, on a lot of things. As soon as it gets close, something gets close to damaging the government, there's no way that they let it run. Um, there's no attempt to sort of dig in and embed it or keep going with it. It's just, uh, okay, we'll change it and do something more popular then. Yeah. And he likes to be liked. Yeah, he does. Clearly. Um, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> That is true. Um, John, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you so much. Thanks very much, Ben. Um, If you're a new listener to the Behind the Headlines podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. And if there are stories you'd like to hear discussed on the show, then please let us know. You can email behindtheheadlines at independent.co.uk. You can also support this show and original journalism at The Independent by signing up as a supporter details of that are in the description of this podcast. I'm Ben Kelly. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.